From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, Healthy Living in the Wasatch. I'm Lynn Ware-Peak, here with David Windsor. This morning, David and I speak with consultant Chuck Wisner, who talks about the art of conscious conversations, what makes a truly good listener, how can we dialogue and converse more effectively. Tune in to hear about how to navigate the four types of conversations. Then, have you ever felt like you want to make a difference in your community or in the world, but don't know how to go about it? We speak with author and activism coach, Omkari Williams. She shares how you can make a difference in the world without a bullhorn. It's all in her new book called Microactivism. And it you might just rather put your energy into this positive form of activism. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words from our underwriters. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm David Windsor. Have you ever thought about how you really converse, how you listen, or even if you listen, and Mm -hmm. how you drive down into the heart of a conversation to see if you're effectively communicating? Well, our next guest, Chuck Wisner, consults on communication all over the country, and he's turned conversations into not only an art, but a science. Chuck Wisner's latest work is The Art of Conscious Conversations, transforming how we talk, listen, and interact. He presents a powerful framework for breaking free from unproductive conversational patterns and forging meaningful, lasting dialogues. Chuck, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thanks for having me. It's great to connect with you all. Well, it's great to have you. It's funny, there are lots and lots of resources on effective communication. And I I feel like recently, you know, we're talking more about how we listen, or rather how we don't listen. And so I thought I would just start with that. You work with Fortune 500 companies all over the country. And why is it that we don't listen? (laughs) Well, the first part of the book is uh, on a conversation called Storytelling. And, um, and, and so we live in stories, basically it's our identity is based on stories and what we think of other people and how we interact. That's the good side. It's the beautiful side, but the bad side is we get addicted to our stories. So our egos come into play, our, we go on automatic pilot. So we tend to hold onto our stories really firmly and I'll say extend our stories to opinions and facts. We tend to hold our opinions really firmly because our identity is attached. And so while we're talking to someone, often we're, we have a script running inside of our mind about what's going on or what I'm thinking or what I'm worried about or why I'm afraid or, or, or why I want to kill that person or at least beat them up. <laughs> and we have all those scripts running and that, that actually is the distraction that keeps us from just being with the person and totally absorbing what they're saying with with an honest, sincere uh, uh, intention of trying to better understand them. So it's this dynamic where we want to listen, but then the monkeys in our mind sort of get in the way and our ego sort of also plays a role there. In your previous life, you were an architect before you became a consultant. And it really strikes me as so interesting because an architect is someone who needs to listen to the nth degree and to not run those scripts, yet you're the professional. Mm-hmm. And it made me it makes me think about all of these kinds of conversations that we have with experts or someone that we need to communicate our goal with, but yes. they've already they've got a whole background that they're operating from. In your world of being an architect, I mean, is this where this always illuminated for you? <laughs> there, there's two two parts to that uh, to, to to answer that question. One is, I think to be a good architect, you really do have to listen to the client. Um, you they might not know how to get what they want, but they know sort of what they want, and they have a feeling about what they want. And so you have to really listen. Some architects do that and some architects don't. Some architects, like they have their ego, they have their idea what they want to put on paper and what they want to build and they miss the client. And that's fairly common. So I think, you know, that there is an art to sort of having your your expertise, but also bringing people along and satisfying their, their desires, right? So that's one piece. The other piece was 
in architecture, we, I, and my firm, we had a partner who had trouble with alcohol. He became an alcoholic. And that was really trouble for troublesome for us when it happened to affect our staff or affect our clients. So we hired in some help and a woman came in after we went through a few folks that didn't work out. Her name is Linda Reed. She was a, a consultant and she walked us through a process of listening to us, of understanding the situation, teaching us, and then helping us out the other end. And I was flabbergasted. Here I was, you know, I'm an educated architect and blah, blah, blah. But what she did seemed like magic to me. And it touched a chord because I've had a long life of interest in philosophy and psychology and spirituality. And it seemed like she was just, she just, the way she was with us just opened up a a curiosity in me that, that in, in, in fact, is what took me on a journey to change careers. We're really striking a chord with me with this construction conversation. I'm, I'm a general <laughs> contractor, Chuck, and I, I coach contractors myself. And yep. so, yeah, the, the whole premise of what I coach is we're in a business of customer service. And to provide good customer service, you have to provide good communication. And right. it all starts with the architect and then the client. But the, the hard part as a contractor is getting all those right minds in the right room. So I can understand what the architect and the client are talking about, as well as getting the subcontractors there. I feel construction is a little bit of an archaic industry, if you will. And what, what in your experience, what have you seen that works the best when it comes to communicating all these right parties at the same time? Yeah. So the, the, the second part of the book is, is on collaborative conversations. And I think in the building industry, boy, getting contractors and owners and architects and engineers and maybe even bankers or finance people or real estate people in a room is a tricky business because well, everyone's coming in with their perspective. Everyone's coming in with their desires to make money or do a building or whatever it is. And so to, for you to to manage that, it's a real skill of, of, of list, listening and and then and asking a lot of questions and then letting letting the the group find answers and th that's the art of collaboration but a lot of times what happens is the loudest person in a room or the most angry person in the room sort of wins the battle um and i've actually i had an experience where i was in a meeting we were doing a, a two or three million dollar housing project south of Boston, where the owners, it wasn't going well. The owner was very sort of demanding. His rep was very arrogant and obnoxious. The contractor was losing money. And literally, we brought them together to say, okay, let's let's put all this down. Let's get through this. Let's get some money paid and move on. And it just turned into a nightmare. And the contractor's son actually leaped across the table and attacked the owner's rep. So, <laughs> so we were, we ended up breaking up the fist fight, but, but that's, that's, you know, t tempers and things can flare up so big that people just lose sense of, wait a minute, what are we here for? How, how can we, how can we make, uh, have a conversation that every, everybody wins in, in, in some way or another, or we, at least we collaboratively agree on what's, what the next steps are. Yeah. Man, my ego just got boosted, feel, realizing I have never been in a fist fight in a conversation for one of my construction <laughs> projects. That's good um, news. Yeah, yeah, it's great news. Um, so that being said, there's a lot of personalities. I just went to a conference, and this one of the gentlemen that, that spoke was he worked in crisis management, and he said his whole job is with these big, big, big corporations is to help lead them down a direction, and then make them think that it was their idea through mm. their own communication. And so, when you're consulting all over the country, how does this conversation work? How do you get these right minds together and how do you help solve the problem at hand that you've been hired to do? So there's four conversations, storytelling, collaboration, creative conversation, commitment conversation. The collaborative conversation is when we all bring our stories into a room. We all bring our perspective, our special perspective into a room. And that's when things get very messy because we're, because like I said earlier, we're attached to our opinions and we get we get, uh, we grasp them. The art of that doing that is to get a, as many perspectives out on the table, spoken aloud as we can, so that different people around the table hear, oh, Barbara thinks this, and Joe thinks that, and Henry thinks that. And what happens in that, that open dialogue, um, where we're listening to other 
perspectives and other opinions is there's a there's a learning quality to it the opposite is is if everyone's coming coming into the room thinking their answer is the answer and so instead of there being a learning quality everyone there's a knower wanting to win their you know have their position win or their perspective be the right one and so this notion of allowing people the time to hear each other to learn from each other that's when aha moments happen that's when in the room we have a tough thing but we you know five or people five or six people are wrestling with something and all of a sudden someone goes wow you know what i never thought of it that way and with that we could do x and X wasn't on anyone's mind because that idea sort of came out of that learning open space conversation. If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, we're having a conversation with Chuck Wisner. His new book is The Art of Conscious Conversations, Transforming How We Talk, Listen, and Interact. So, wow, Chuck, um, I, I don't think many people go into meetings or interactions thinking that they are going to utter the words that you just said. Wow, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. And and the problem there, I think, I mean, if you're being really honest with your yourself and you're say in a work situation where you're going into a meeting, you want to project as a leader. You want to project as someone who has ideas. You don't want right. to go in there, albeit it, you know, it it makes your mind a little more closed, but you don't want to go in saying, wow, my mind's totally open and I am open <laughs> to uh, suggestion. And so, you know, how do we step back? It's I feel like it's not even, it's more than an ego thing. Yeah. It's just about how we think that we need to present. Yeah, yeah. We're, well, we're trained to have answers. I mean, for, think about in elementary school, we all raise our hand to have the answer. We don't raise our hand because we have a question that might befuddle the teacher. Uh, <laughs> so we're trained to have answers and we're actually paid good money to be experts, right? But, but you know, the stories we bring into a meeting or the, opi the opinions we bring into a meeting, there's, there's three components. There's facts. What What is the reality? What do we know? What we don't know? What can we agree on as far as data or facts? And then there's our opinion. And so facts are a great foundation to start from in a conversation. But when we're coming into a meeting, you're, to answer your question is, if we come in with our opinion and holding it like a closed fist, then we're, we're like saying, and I'm going to prove that my answer is the right answer, right? I'm not asking you to give up your position. I'm asking you to open your hand and say, I think we should do X and here's why. This is how I think success would look. This is what my concerns are. This is how I believe this satisfies our mission. So we open our hand and, and offer some thinking underneath an opinion instead of just presenting our opinion as the truth. And that's a hard move. I mean, that's a vulnerable move. We have to sort of open our hand and go, I have an opinion. It might not be the best, but I'm willing to share it. And ironically, if a leader does that, that's he's modeling that behavior. And yeah. that creates some safety for other people to open their hand and go, wow, you know, maybe here's how I'm thinking. And maybe we should compare. Maybe our standards are different or maybe we have different concerns. And then the, the conversation deepens. Yeah. Isn't it funny how when you're interacting with someone, the difference in how you feel kind of in your gut when they say, I may not be right about this, or I'm not really sure, but here's what I'm thinking. Your your feeling of defensiveness just goes down. You've discovered this whole realm of backing down off of the opinion. However, our conversations are in crisis. We're being polarized, and even if we want to have an open mind, we often go into a conversation without one. For example, I have someone very close to me who believes that the earth is flat. I just cannot have that conversation. It's really hard. Yep. What would your tip be? Well, I, so that really gets to a fundamental issue that we're suffering from politically right now, because think about it our society our cultures are based on some fundamental truths based on science based on observations based on you know experience that is the glue that holds us together as a society now i'm not saying that 
all the truths that science says are are the end game. We only know what we can know right right now in this moment. But we're suffering from the loss of appreciation of let's agree on some facts. Let's appreciate expertise. Let's at least believe science as best they know at this moment, right? Because without those foundations, we're in dangerous waters because then anybody can make any any dang thing up, right? And go, oh no, it's not that, it's this. And again, for people that aren't, are just being in the world and not really thinking about their thinking, they'll go and they'll follow. But we have to regain uh, our appreciation of expertise and science and facts. And it's okay not to have a conversation about that. It's okay to walk away. You know, you can try and say, let's, can we agree on a few things? Can we look at some facts? I was in a men's group uh, right before COVID of people that were, they weren't students, but they were clients of mine that came together as a group of men. And then COVID happened in politics and I could not all but for one of them, I could not get them to have a conversation about real facts because they were already down the rabbit hole of QAnon. And so I just walked away. I said, you know, I love you guys. I'm happy to talk about things, but unless we can have a firm foundation of that gives us some solid ground, I can't be in this conversation. Mm, Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, again, the four types of conversation, storytelling, collaborative, creative, and commitment. Um, Mm. I wanted to go back into storytelling David and I met in Toastmasters, actually, and we had this (laughs) wonderful person who came to Toastmasters and he would always say, tell a story, make a point, tell a story, make a point like that is going to be your speech. And so storytelling to me is is always good to to relate something back to what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But you you it's a cautionary tale, right? Because you talk about our stories are main, maybe not real. So can you elaborate on that? Sure. And and so I grew up with a story in my mind. I grew up in a belief in my mind, a story that became a belief that I wasn't a big enough man. And I adopted that from my grandfather. I was in Pennsylvania. He was a bit of a redneck or not a bit, fairly a redneck. So he had his beliefs. He had his way he would grow up and what he thought manhood was. Well, I had three older sisters. Uh, they could cry. They could be emotional. I couldn't. I didn't like skinning the deer. I didn't like certain things. And every time those things happened, I was told, be a bigger man. You're not a big enough man. Well, here I am, six, seven, eight years old. Here he is, the adult. I adopt his story that I'm not a big enough man. And I live with that story until I studied the ontology of language. And I was able to bust that story and say, wait a minute, that was his standard of a man. And the facts of the matter right now, when I'm, I was basically 30 at that point, that the facts don't line up. And I was able to bust that story, which was really then freeing for me, because then I could say, okay, what what are my what's my definition? You know, I was a successful architect. I was happily married. I had two young children. I, you know, so the story fell off. I walked back into the office one morning and I'm having coffee with a colleague who has happened to be the one of the partners. And it's the first time I was standing there and I was sipping my coffee and inside my head, I said, oh my gosh, I am taller than Bill. And it's the first time I realized that I was taller than him. And that's how powerful that negative story was that I saw myself smaller. So, you know, stories are beautiful and that's how we relate. That's how we connect and they can be detrimental. So my only thing is don't give up any stories, but look at the ones that aren't serving you, you know, and do a little investigation choose something else and then practice. I want to kind of keep it on that same subject of thinking with inside yourself. And, you know, we all do have those stories, as you mentioned, and we all tell ourselves a story about who we are, but come into the commitment conversation you talk mm-hmm. about and don't make promises you can't keep. Now, these are the promises, as you mentioned, you know, saying that you're going to do the dishes or signing a major contract or mm-hmm. just promises you'll go to your kid's soccer game or whatever. But there's also the promises that you make to yourself that I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to work on that resume. I'm going to, I'm going to commit to something. So how do we internally and, and externally focus on not making these promises that we can't keep, you know, IE like we should hang out sometime and never do. And never do. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the things we do are socially sort of patterned. Like 
you know, we meet someone and we go, hey, we should get together for a drink. That's a social pattern that we adopt. And it's it's fine, except uh, except it has consequences <laughs> down the road. Or we think, oh, he always says that, so we'll never see each other. So this idea of commitments is, is to, I'd say we have to uh, be more, we have to shine a light on them because we're very patterned in how we make commitments. We're very patterned in what we like say the the new year's eve new year's eve rev- resolutions you know we're, we have a pattern of doing that but we also have a pattern of breaking them two weeks later like the gym is em- uh, full for two weeks and then it's empty after that so we have to look at it as a pattern and it's less judgmental right that i like to call them patterns because it's less judgmental so instead of beating ourselves up you go wow that's an interesting pattern and then from there we can investigate it and we can say you know what i'm going to do it differently so instead of making a promise to ourselves without a lot of awareness, we we do it with more awareness. Instead of making saying an automatic yes when someone asks us to do something, we stop and we don't say yes because we we want to really understand what it would mean to fulfill that promise. And we ask a few questions. We go, well, if I say yes, can I deliver? And maybe I can't deliver Monday morning, but I could deliver Tuesday afternoon. So that's sort of shining a light on the, these habits, these automatic patterns and say, step back, slow down, ask a few questions and make a better promise. So that that last conversation, the commitment conversation is very complex. And so until we sort of slow down a little bit, we will continue having these um automatic habits where we just say yes and then we find out we can't fulfill a promise or we ask people to do things that they aren't even competent to do so it's a big conversation and the interesting thing about the stories and the commitment conversations the two bookend conversations we love both of them we love our stories and we love our commitments but i what i say is we do a conversational bypass we, we tell a story in a meeting, someone says, okay, what are we going to do? And the middle two conversations, which are col- collaborative conversations and creative conversations, we totally skip over them. And that's where we actually, that's where the juice is. That's where we learn from other people. That's where we co-create. That's where ideas bubble up because we just have some open space where we're all going, wow, there's another idea I didn't think of. And so this bypass is, again, it's a habit. It's a pattern. And all we need to do is sort of like, shine the light on that and go, okay, let's, let's not jump to a decision. Let's slow down. Let's have a different conversation before we decide. I like that a lot. Having a different conversation. And I wrote this down, make a different promise. That's just, just reframing the way you phrase it is can make all the difference. I want to talk for all my, my introverts out there. And, uh, (laughs) you know, my, my wife's really good at going to a party and interacting, meeting new people, having a meaningful conversation. On the other hand, I find myself, I really struggle at these networking kind of cocktail type events where Mm -hmm. if I go to someone and one of my first go-tos, which is the worst is what do you do for a living? And if they come back with something that I know nothing about, or I have no interest in, the conversation's dead. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm like a deer in headlights. And so when you're meeting people at these parties for the first time, how are you interacting? How are you having a meaningful conversation that can take it beyond, Oh, I'm a doctor. Yeah. Well, the, the, um, the interesting thing about that, those kind of interactions, they are the cocktail parties are actually the best thing for storytelling. Everyone's there telling a story about their kid's soccer game, their success at work, their new job, their new interview. And so it's all a bunch of storytelling. And you probably will have noticed or you've experienced that 80% of the people in the room, some number are really want to talk about themselves and the amount of people that are there to ask questions to really learn about someone else, that's just not the normal pattern, right? So did you ask me if someone asked you what you do for a living and you say X or, or if you ask someone else? No, I'm the guy with the terrible conversation starter saying, oh. <laughs> what do you do for a living? Yeah, yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, so, well, number one, at least you're asking a question, right? But number two is try to think of a broader question that doesn't give them an easy like oh i'm a doctor like you could even say how is your week going or how did you end up at this party how are you connected here um things that they have to sort of give you an answer and the trick is you have to really 
care about that. You can't just be doing it to, to make small talk. So I'd say questions that are a little more open, a little more inviting, and, and ask them to reveal a little, a little bit about themselves. Again, th- this whole idea of, you know, I, I, sometimes I end my, my interviews and podcasts with, we should fall in love with questions because that's, that's what we're not trained to do, right? And so there's an art to it. There's no, I can't give you like do X and it'll be perfect, but the paying attention to the questions you're asking. So your question to me was very good. Like, how can I ask a better question? Um, and, and that takes a little practice too. try, pick a few things and try a few things and see how they work. Um, this whole thing of changing our conversational patterns, there is no magic switch. Like you can read my book and then tomorrow you're going to be in a perfect conversation. Like, well, that's just BS. And anyone that tells you that is not, is not telling you the truth. It's truth that, that when we're changing our conversation, we're messing around with neurons in our head and that takes time. And so we practice. So we try something, it feels good. We get a response and we say, oh yeah, okay, I can do more of that. And so there's a constant practice of changing our patterns that really is what wakes us up and have us has us be more conversational and more conscious of them. A, fr- a great friend of mine was a high school teacher and he would tell young people this one trick and I mm-hmm. and I love it and it goes right hand in hand with what you're saying Chuck is you know just ask three questions make yourself ask people three questions about them and mm-hmm. guaranteed you will you'll come together and you'll relate to one another. Yeah. Yeah. People want to, you know, even introverts, <laughs> David, <laughs> people want to talk about themselves <laughs> because that's how we connect interpersonally. You know, you know, our lives are all mysterious and complex and mm-hmm. troubled and happy and all the whole, it's a, it's a, we get the whole thing, right? So they yeah. love to talk and it's a, it's a release for many people. So yeah, three questions and the more open, the more sort of like, let, let them sort of fill in the blanks, the, the better. The book is The Art of Conscious Conversations, Transforming How We Talk, Listen and Interact. It's invaluable stuff. And Chuck Wisner, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time and having me on the show. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm David Windsor. Have you ever thought of yourself as an activist? And when the word activism is uttered, what does it conjure for you? If you're not an activist in your community, what would it take to empower and inspire you to be one? Well, our next guest is author and activism coach, Omkari Williams. She joins us to discuss her new book, Microactivism, how you can make a difference in the world without a bullhorn. Omkari, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thank you so much for having me, Lynn and David. I've been really looking forward to talking with you both. I think that not all people think of themselves as activists. And I think we live in a time where a lot of us are sort of talking about things that we care about, but we're preaching to the choir and we're not actually making impact in our communities. And so this is why I wanted to talk to you. What are your thoughts on that? I start most of the workshops and trainings that I do by asking the question, what if an activist looks like you? And generally people sort of stop and think, wait, no, that's not me. I'm I'm not an activist. How can you possibly say that? Activists are people like Martin Luther King Jr. or Greta Thunberg. I'm not those people. And my contention is that Those are certainly examples of activists, but there are so many people behind the scenes doing work that moves causes forward, and those people are all activists. That activist doesn't look a certain way. It doesn't only look like the person whose face we know or the person whose name we know. It looks like people who are doing things way behind the scenes, and you will never know their faces, you will never know their names, but without them, the overall goal wouldn't be accomplished. So I think we need to expand our understanding of what an activist actually looks like. And one of the nicest things anyone ever said to me after a workshop I'd done was she sent me an email and she said, 
after this workshop, I all of a sudden realized that this thing I was doing was activism and that thing I was doing was activism because she reframed it for herself. And I think that that's an important piece of the whole thing. Oh, that's very interesting. Just as you were saying that, I was thinking, oh, so David and I could be calling ourselves activists for what we do here on the radio, on public radio. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, to me, anyone who is working consistently to make the world a better place, to bring more dignity to the lives of all of us is engaged in some form of activism. And it doesn't have to be a form that I'm particularly interested in because there are as many causes as there are people on the planet. And we need to respect that and let people do the thing that calls to them and celebrate that. Because if we were all doing some small thing to make the world better, we would live in a very different circumstance than the one we're currently in. Man, ain't that the truth? I, I yeah. love this concept. It's basically like, in other words, saying that everyone has a voice. Everyone can make a difference. It's the pebble creating the ripple in the pond effect. And so what inspired you to be, I'll call it an outspoken activist versus a lot of people are afraid to sit back and they're they're afraid to be outspoken. They're afraid to share their voice and, and, and share their message with the world. So what, what inspired you to become an activist? It really comes down to my family. My dad was a humanitarian and a relief worker, and he worked in places as difficult as Rwanda during the genocide and Bosnia during the war there. You know, when I was a kid, he was working resettling Vietnamese refugees from the war here in the United States. So I grew up with an understanding that I had enormous privilege just by virtue of having been born in the U.S. and in a place where we weren't experiencing war on our own land and all of the other things that I had and took for granted that are not necessarily the case for other people, not only around the world, but even in their own communities here. And so activism was sort of something I grew up with, but I also knew that there was no way I could do the kind of work my dad did that I did not have the emotional constitution to go to a war zone or to go to um, a place where people were, were, real, were starving. That was just not me. And so I thought about how can I make a difference? What can I do? And although I am actually a very introverted person, I've never been intimidated by speaking in public. If I believe in something, I am completely willing to stand up and say so. And I thought, well, then use your voice. This is what you can do. You can use your voice and you can use your voice to hopefully inspire other people to do what they can do in their own way. It doesn't have to be my way. It shouldn't be. We shouldn't all be doing the same thing, right? We should all be doing the thing we can do in the way we can do it because that's where that's where the power is, is not in everyone just being on the one ride. It's everyone being on a ride, but the same. In, we're all in the same environment of moving things forward for good. Absolutely. And like, moving things forward for good is definitely a part of activism. But I'd argue that activism can be used for bad as well. And, and we're, we've entered a time recently with a lot of wars and you know, the, the last, you know, after COVID in our country in America and everything. And there's been a lot of activism, we'll call it, towards an agenda that is harmful to other individuals. And so can activism be dangerous at times? I don't necessarily call that activism. I call that violence or terrorism. To me, activism inherently is about making something better. And when people take that and misuse it, I mean, you can misuse anything at all. There's nothing that is good that cannot be turned into something that is bad if people want to do that and want to go down that road. So I think that activism carries the weight of responsibility for moving things in a positive direction. And if you are throwing rocks at windows, you're not an activist, you're a vandal. You know, there's no call for that. And sometimes I think people conflate activism with that because some person will do that in the context of 
a march or something like that. And that's basically to me, like when one kid would do something bad in class and the whole class had to stay late after school, I was like, why are we being punished for the one kid who acted out? And we have that tendency to focus on the one bad apple and not recognize that that's not actually representative of the whole. So I think it's important to separate out bad actors from people who are sincerely working for a greater good and would never consider violence or property harm or anything like that acceptable. If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, we're speaking with author and activism coach Omkari Williams. She's talking to us about her new book, Microactivism, How You Can Make a Difference in the World Without a Bullhorn. Omkari, I'd like to explore David's question just a little bit more to help us know, maybe for ourselves, and I think the thing that you just said that was so powerful is if you're throwing rocks at windows, you're not making the world a better place, right? And so how do we check both ourselves and other sorts of pushes towards activism to make sure that we are delivering the message that's not the misinformation message, for example? Yeah, I. it sounds sort of simple, but I do think that the old golden rule, do unto others as you would like them to do unto you, is a really good metric. Do you want someone throwing a rock through your window? You do not. So don't do that, right? Do you want someone speaking to you with kindness and respect? Yeah. So move that forward. And I, I, I think we complicate it sometimes unnecessarily when we make things so big. You know, we do live in the society where we have this go big or go home mantra, and it gets in the way of people feeling the value of their own small contribution, but also the power of their small actions, whether for good or for ill. And I think when we recognize that our actions do, as David said, have ripples, we're more aware of being thoughtful about what we're doing. We're more aware of being considerate of other people and also of ourselves and and our own integrity. I want to be able to look myself in the eye and feel like what I've done was positive. And if I'm doing harmful things, there's no way to do that. So when you talk about being harmful and having integrity, do you think that, do you encourage activists, microactivists to to slow down and and collect their thoughts and and put it on paper before they go out and have their voice because emotion plays a lot into activism and people get very fired up about the topic that they're out there promoting or being an activist for. And so is there encouragement to write out your thoughts or to come up with a game plan before you go out and share your message with the world? I think the most important thing is to think about what it is you're trying to accomplish in the larger sense. And then look at what actions you're thinking about taking and say, are those in alignment with my overall goal? So if your overall goal is to make the world a more peaceful place, you're not going to go out and do things that are not peaceful because you're acting against your overall goal. So whether you write it down or you have a conversation with other people and you all sit down and say, here are the ground rules for how we're going to engage. And it was really lived into during the civil rights movement when the whole nonviolence trainings were happening. And no matter what people were confronted with, they did not respond to violence with violence. That was not what they did. And I think that if we use that as our template for how we do our work, that we can't possibly go wrong because they were in congruence. They They were in alignment with their overall stated message when they moved through the world. And that was part of what was so powerful about the civil rights movement was they were met with dogs and batons and angry people, and they did not respond with violence. Very powerful. And it's a different type of world we live in now where you're not out on the streets necessarily and and being confronted with dogs because we live in a world right now where we have an abundance of information 
and everyone has a platform. Everyone has a supercomputer, a microphone, and a camera in their pocket all at once. And so your book talks about your activist archetype and the tools that provide people with this type. And so what's important for people before they go out and use that that phone in their pocket for their activism and their platform? What's important for them to understand that activist type? So the reason I created the archetypes was partly to sort of push back against the idea that there's one way of being an activist. So the four archetypes are the headliner, the producer, the organizer, and the indispensable. And the headliner is exactly who you'd think they would be. They're the face of the movement. The producer is the person behind the scenes who's keeping the whole picture of the plan in mind. The organizer is someone who may, who's working on, let's say, one specific aspect of something. And then the indispensables, they're the people who, without whom everything would fall apart because they are the ones stuffing the envelopes and making sure there's coffee in the break room and making sure there's toilet paper in the bathrooms and that people know where to get water on a march route and things like that, really basic things. And I think that we don't often understand how important each of those individual roles are in any kind of overall plan. And so when I think about how people should engage in their activism, considering their archetype, one of the things I really like people to do is make sure that you sort of have a team around you that includes various people so that you have people who can hold you accountable, be there to support you when things are going hard and be there to celebrate when things are going well. And to just basically understand that if you are a certain archetype, don't try and do things that are out so far outside of your comfort zone that you're going to just stop. Find what you can do and do that consistently. Okay, the four activist archetypes, the headliner, the organizer, the producer, or the indispensable. And as you're talking, Omkari, it's making me think of ways in our community that we can all be activists, but it brings up the word volunteer. And so how do you differentiate between an activist and a volunteer? Sometimes they're the same. They they don't have to be different. Some people, they're, the way they use their activism is they volunteer. They do the literacy readings at the library. They go to the food pantry and help on a regular basis. And some people make it their work. So I don't necessarily draw a distinction between those two things. And I think that it's important to recognize that being a volunteer is really important and necessary and valuable. There's so many organizations that would not be able to survive without volunteers. They don't have the funding to pay everybody. And even if they have some money, wouldn't you rather that the money that a food bank might be spending to pay a staff person, wouldn't you prefer to have volunteers who can pick up some of the slack so more of the money can go to actually feeding the hungry? So volunteer and activist can be the, exactly the same, but they don't have to be. Yeah. Okay. So taking the example of the food pantry, and I, I guess this is trying to establish kind of the archetype of the activist and how you can actually do better. I, I remember during sort of the thick of COVID, I was volunteering at a mobile food pantry that was taking the food around to apartment complexes. So it was just easier to access. It was such a wonderful feeling to be there and to see how grateful people were that you were bringing it to them. But I also felt like, wow, our our larger community really needs to know about this because it feels like you're just making one drop in the bucket that needs to be filled. When you find yourself, you know, whether you're going to an elementary school and reading to ESL learners or whatever it is, when you find yourself saying, gosh, th- this is wonderful, but how are we going to make a big difference? I think that we have to understand that we can have these really lofty desires. I mean, who wouldn't want to address the whole thing of world hunger? If we could just eradicate world hunger, who wouldn't want to do that, right? 
But if you feed one person, if you feed one family, doesn't that matter? Doesn't that count? It certainly counts for the people you're feeding. And so I think sometimes we just need to scale back and get out of that idea that only big actions matter because the small actions accumulate. And so you may be going around to the apartment complexes. And for all you know, there's someone in that apartment complex who then is inspired to go out and do that again in maybe a different environment. We don't know the ripples of our actions. And I think that it's important to recognize, because we know from our own lives, people have done things for us that they never knew how much those things meant. That's the same way going in the other direction. And I think we need to value that and celebrate that. And if everyone did something that mattered and made the world better every day, it would be a totally different world that we're living in. There are 8 billion people on the planet. 8 billion acts of goodness every day would change things dramatically. Ain't that the truth? I never thought about it before, but when you broke it down, the headliner, the organizer, the producer, the indispensable, it's it's exactly like running a business. And when you run a business, you don't know if it's going to work. And same, like you said, with your ripple effect of your message, you don't know if it's going to work. But when you run a business, everyone has a role. There's the sales team, the CEO, the marketer, the, the accountant. And so everyone has a participation in the business for the message, the product, the movement. But it's really, really hard to run a business and start a business. And it can be extremely overwhelming at times. So what advice do you have to beginners and, and people that want to get involved in activism and, and where to start and how to overcome the challenges of, I'm going to call it running a business, i.e. Okay. activism. Yeah, that's legit. I would say start close in, start with the cause that calls to your heart. And then just start with the people that you are in proximity to. Don't set your goals so far and so big at the outset that you're bound to be disappointed. And because disappointment leads us to quit, right? But if you say, okay, I'm gonna just start with the two people here or the three people in my community. I'm gonna invite four people over to build a community garden. Start close in and then watch it ripple out. That's really my advice. Because yeah, running a business is hard, this doesn't have to be like running a business. This can be like just doing your part in the business rather than having to worry about the entire scope of the business. It brings me back to one of my favorite sayings of, from the Navy SEALs, which is how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Exactly. I'm curious, you have a, you have a term in, called craftivism. What, mm -hmm. Tell us about this. So craftivism is crafts used in support of activism. An example might be something like people who make quilts that are donated to homeless shelters so that people are warm at night. It could be people who are using their skills as visual artists to design posters that show people where to go to find a food pantry. There are ways to bring your art into your activism so that, again, you're working within your own archetype. You don't have to necessarily be someone who wants to go out and do anything, but you can sit home and create a poster and say, here's where the food pantry is, here's this information, and put that on, on light posts in your town so that people who are unhoused, people who are hungry, know where they can go and get some resources. There are things you can do that are based in your artistic abilities, of which I honestly have none, that make a difference. I included craftivism because I do want people to understand that it's not all about people doing the same kind of thing. Use your skills, use your gifts, and see where you can make the needle move a little closer to justice, a little closer to dignity. Mm. Um, Kari, before we let you go, not only do you lead workshops and trainings on activism, but you have a podcast called Stepping Into Truth, and you interview people about how they are being activists. And so would you share a couple of quick stories about people doing activism or being activists in really unique ways? Okay, so I my most recent episode was with a woman, her name is Kat Calvin. 
she actually has an organization and her organization is Project ID. And there are 26 million people in the United States who do not have state-issued ID for some one reason or another. And without state-issued ID, you can't open a bank account, you can't get a job, you can't get an apartment. I mean, the things you cannot get without ID are basically everything. And so CATS organization works to get help people get the ID they need by helping them find the documentation that they need people who have lost birth certificates over time or that, you know, I mean, you know, your social security card, that little flimsy piece of paper that you're not allowed to laminate and is supposed to stay with you for the rest of your life, these things go missing, right? So CATS organization works with people all over the country and they've gotten thousands and thousands of people the ID that they need to be able to live their lives with dignity and respect and be able to be housed. And then there's um, another person who I interviewed that is doing really, really wonderful work is Coco Pappy. And Coco lives in Savannah. She's profiled in my book. And she really is focused on making sure that people who have been arrested for some small offense don't wind up having to sit in jail because they can't pay the bail to get out. Because if you're sitting in jail while you're waiting to be found guilty or not guilty of your crime, you lose your job, you can lose your home, you lose your connection to the society at large. And that's devastating and so unnecessary. And then lastly, there there were two people I interviewed, John Gray and Rebecca Grace, who have an organization called Complete Picture. And Complete Picture does videos that they take to sentencing judges for people who have been found guilty of nonviolent offenses. And they show them to the judges. And the purpose of these videos is to give the judge a complete picture of who this individual is beyond the worst thing they ever did. So the judge can make a sentence that actually reflects the wholeness of the person, not just this one mistake that they made. So those are some of my favorite ones. It's nice to have those stories. Omkari Williams is our guest, and her new book is Microactivism, How You Can Make a Difference in the World Without a Bullhorn. Omkari, thank you so much for joining us on The Mountain Life. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to The Mountain Life here on KPCW Park City. You can go online to catch all of our archived shows at kpcw.org under the Shows tab and The Mountain Life. Also, wherever you get your podcasts.